listeners. You're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We are your hosts, Sarah Cho and Sam Collier, and we are so excited to introduce to you today Terry Guest. Terry, yay! Terry is a Chicago-based playwright, actor, and teaching artist from Atlanta, Georgia. His works at the wake of a dead drag queen, Marie Antoinette and the Magical Negroes, and the Magnolia Ballet re-examine American history through the experiences of Black people. We are so excited. Welcome to the show, Terry Guest. Welcome! Thank you for having me. Wow, this is so cool to be on a real life podcast. Yay! Okay. So, I love my <laughs> podcasting voice. <laughs> yes, um, it's beautiful. So, we like to start off with talking about early memories. So, what's your earliest memory and what was your life like before theater? Ooh, okay. So my earliest memory is watching The Bodyguard, <laughs> um, the Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I remember watching it and watching specifically the end where Whitney Houston is singing, I Will Always Love You. And it's a close up on her just fucking gorgeous face. And I remember thinking, I don't know how and I don't know when, but I know that one day I'm going to be this beautiful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I have been striving for that ever since. But yeah, that's my earliest memory. And funny enough, I mean, in some ways that is theater. I mean, in that particular mm. movie, she was performing on a stage. Um, and I think that in my mind that implanted this uh, fantasy about performing in general, but theater in the traditional sense, I'll go back to the very beginning. Okay. So I saw, um, I saw the Nutcracker and like, mm. oh, great. <laughs> and I thought that it was boring. And then <laughs> I saw the magic yeah. flute in maybe fifth or sixth grade. And I was amazed by that. Just like the sets and, you know, um, and so in ninth grade, there was a class called musical theater and I thought musical theater was opera. I thought it was like, but mm. I saw the magic flute. Right. Um, and so I signed up for it, thought that seems easy enough. I could do it. And I get into the class and the first day, my teacher, this is in Richmond Hill, Georgia now. So we're not talking about the greatest school systems. Okay. So my teacher sits us down and turns on a documentary what? About, <laughs> right, mm. about musical theater. But in that documentary, I was blown away because I didn't even know that any of this existed. I like learned about Wicked and Phantom of the Opera and Cats and Hello Dolly, you know, <laughs> literally the same afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, this is it. This is the way to channel that Whitney Houston dream of being beautiful on a stage into something that felt possible. Mm. Um, yeah, and I've been on the theater train since. And did you get to perform at all in that class? I did. We did a um, musical theater review, and we did Susical, the musical. So the musical theater review was first, and that was my first time ever actually like being on a stage by myself. I didn't have any solos, but I did have some incredible um, stage crosses. And um, then in Seussical, I was a Wickersham brother. There is someone out there listening to this who's like, yeah, I know I that, that, that's <laughs> to me. Um, yeah, I was a Wickersham brother and I just loved it. I mean, I was a sort of shy child and my family life was complex. And my mother, who I was really close to, she was uh, she was in the army and this was in the early 2000s so she was going back and forth to iraq um, as was my stepdad and i didn't realize this at the time but i think they were both going through some ptsd mm. and so my household was just really fraught as a kid and theater was a place where people applauded for me and told me that i was desirable and told me that i was talented and um, 
I think it's the first 10 years of me working in the theater was just trying to chase that validation. And um, to be frank, I'm just now figuring out like, okay, what's the other side of it? What does theater have to offer me outside of this kind of um, desperate and honestly egotistical validation? Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people get into theater for those same reasons. Yeah. How did y'all get into theater? I know this is a, I know this is an interview and all, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I I can definitely relate to that feeling of um, that. It's kind of this like eternal family or home that you can Mm -hmm. always return to and, um, you know, step into this role that people will applaud for and validate you. And it, you know, I think for those of us who grew up feeling like it was something we were good at, that was really a special thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like this community or family that um, uh, would see that I found, I felt seen and validated in a way that I didn't um, necessarily. I mean, not to say that like my family didn't validate me, which they did, but mm-hmm. um, it was a different kind of validation and a different kind of um, person I could get to be in in the theater world. Mm. Yeah. During high school for me, because I went to three different high schools, I moved around a lot. Um, I just saw the theater kids always, you know, hanging out, eating lunch together. I was always going to have an outsider. And I think seeing the theater kids, you know, doing exercises outside and like performing together. I was like, what is like, this looks like, how do I, I mean, the back of my head, I was like, how do I become part of that? But I was at the same time, I was like, they look weird. They're doing weird stuff. They're rubbing <laughs> each other's shoulder. What is that? But at the same time, this like sense of community, they were together. And, you know, I was always used to just me and one other friend eating lunch together, you know, we were just kind of like outsiders. But but seeing that and then I think going to college, I, I was that was always stuck with me. And I was like, well, what is this theater thing? And what do people do there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that curiosity was always there. Yeah. So I have a question. So how old were you when you first um, were exposed to theater? So probably, you know, uh, like I said, well, like I said, I saw The Nutcracker Mm -hmm. in fourth grade. Yeah. I really started diving heavily into theater, specifically musical theater, Mm -hmm. uh, because that grabbed me first. When I was maybe 15. Yeah. And that exploration remains to this day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the thing about musicals, and I love musicals. I learned structure from musicals in terms of like I like how to make an entertaining and emotionally resonant show. Mm-hmm. I think that musical theater structure is brilliant. And um I just Dang, I forgot where I forgot what, I, what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> We're talking about structure, learning structure for musicals. Yes, 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 yes. I love musicals. I learned structure in musicals, and there are so many of them yeah. that I am still always stumbling across some random show from you know the seventies that I've never heard before that I can listen to and um, learn from. They were so you know, musical theater is just such an experimental art form, mm. uh, and I don't think it gets enough credit for that. What are some of your favorite musicals today? I am happy you asked. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I love Carolina Change is my favorite musical. Oh, movie. yes. Yeah. So um, good. So good. So good. Also, Passing Strange. Uh-huh. I love. Uh, I think Gypsy is has the best book of any musical. I think just like structurally, again, Gypsy is uh Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the light in the piazza. I love I love fun, silly, stupid musicals too. Like um I I still think Avenue Q holds up. I just moved and I was listening to a lot of Avenue Q. It felt <laughs> really like <laughs> I was feeling that like, oh, I remember when I was in college. It wasn't mm. that confusing. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is, it's such a early adulthood musical. And I feel like there was a moment maybe a year ago or maybe longer. I don't know. I've lost all sense of time with the pandemic, but yeah. where people kind of fell out of love with Avenue Q and they were, you know, yeah. just pointing out the really problematic things yeah. in it. <laughs> and it was kind of like a way of distancing themselves from that awkwardness of early adulthood, I think. Mm. Of like, you know, you grow up a little bit and you're like, oh, I can't love the things I loved when I was that age anymore. Absolutely. I think that is so, so poignant. Um, and Avenue Q, yes, there are certainly problematic aspects to it, but I will say this much. It still works, okay? It's it's like, yeah, it is I still agree. Cool. And If You Were Gay is just a really beautiful, touching song. Oh, always in it's like, like It's just kind of, yeah, it just feels like a very kind of young Musical, maybe. But maybe that's just because I was young when I discovered it. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know. So um, tell us a little bit about your show at the Wake of a Dead Drag Queen. It's such a beautiful play, and I'd love to know how it came to be. Um, so at the Wake of a Dead Drag Queen is about my family. It is about my uncle, Anthony, who was a Black gay drag queen and he died of AIDS when I was 15. And um, his, you know, I've told the story a million, million times, but when he first told me that he was sick, he also told me in the same conversation that he was gay. Wow. And I knew wow. that he was gay because, you know, there are rumors my cousins would be like, wah, 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 wah. you know, Anthony wears dresses, whatever. But you know, for a 15-year-old kid who was not out yet to my family or really to myself, and um, I grew up very religiously. So it was really impactful to have the, really the only queer influence in my life tell me that they are both queer and um, dying of AIDS at the same time. Mm -hmm. And he died shortly after that, like a, a few months later. But before he died, I asked if he thought he was going to go to hell because he was gay. And he said, yes. Wow. And that just really, really stuck with me. And um, I knew then that there was more to explore there. I didn't know how. Mm. Um, of course, at the time, I thought, well, I will write a musical because that's what I knew of theater. And um, I tried and it just never really worked. And every couple of years, I would just sit down and be like, I'm going to write this play. I even had the title, y'all. I, I knew it. I was like, <laughs> this is going to be bomb whenever I can actually get this shit written, right? So every couple of years, I would sit down and write a few pages and nothing really stuck. And then I moved to Chicago and it was cold. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Adele had just released 25 and I was sad and I just wrote it. It just, yeah. it, it just, was time. yeah. Mm. Um, and was mm. he, so in the, in the story you wrote, Anthony is, I think, 23. Yeah. When he dies, is that how old your uncle was? No, 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 no. Okay. My uncle was ooh, like 34 or 35 when he died. Okay. But um, I aged the character down so that I could play it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And, I mean, there's a lot in, you know, it. this, like many of my plays, is a situation of the play is truthful but not factual. Mm. So, That's beautiful. Yeah, I love yeah. that. So th there, there's a lot in the play that is not factual, but it is 100% true, I think. Can you um, explain that a little bit further, what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So I write mostly history plays um, in some way. Every play that I've written has a activist purpose of recontextualizing some of these really complicated uh, historic moments in American history for audiences today to be able to like digest them and get some nutrition out of them. 
um, out of the history. And we just have such a terrible uh, relationship with history and with teaching our history here in this country. And I worked at the Atlanta History Center for a few years. So I really got to see, and I was in the education Mm -hmm. department. So I really got to see how we are teaching children this history Mm -hmm. and so much of it is wrong. And so much of it, of course, factually is wrong, but also just the import of history is not explained accurately. Like we are taught in school that what is important about history is knowing that the Civil War ended in 1865. And that's not, that doesn't, that's, that's not important at all. Here in this, that's why we're here now, because that's what we are learning in school. You know, we're learning about when battles are and the names of generals. And that's not, what's important is the emotional history, the emotional chronological, Mm -hmm. the emotional chronologicalness. That's not a word, but uh, you know what it is. The, the, you know, the. Yeah, the unfolding or the sequence of, of the emotional structures of people's lives. Yes, sis. Thank you. You know, I have to ask, I like uh, 110% agree with you right now. And I'm also very aware that I'm like all water signs in my chart. So um, (laughs) what is your sun sign? Oh, okay. So I am a Pisces. Of course you are. All about the emotions. I am a Pisces. I am also a Pisces moon, and I am a, a Cancer rising. Okay. Oh wow. I'm a Cancer sun and a Pisces moon and a Pisces rising. Oh, wow. <laughs> so much water over here. <laughs> yes, we're talking about emotional connection. Yes, we are. <laughs> you know, but um, a, a good friend of mine. Her name is Regina Victor. They're incredible. Look them up on, you know, social media. Uh, But anyway, they always, they've worked with me in developing pieces before. And they always describe my work as work that has a, uh, that that does not happen literally chronologically but that happens emotionally chronologically which i love because if you're looking at history and you're like let's say that you are writing a play about the civil war maybe it doesn't make sense to have the war ending and um you know the emancipation proclamation and abraham lincoln being murdered maybe that doesn't make the most sense emotionally to have it at the end maybe Mm -hmm. you're actually trying to uh, re-experience emotionally what some of the what it may have felt like to live during the Civil War or um, to sort of question what the effects of the Civil War are on us today. Maybe it makes the most sense to have Lincoln be murdered first, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, again, going back to that, what is true and what is accurate. Truth has very little to do, I think, with dates, times, and locations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that truth is something that is much more mysterious than that. And human beings have found all of these ways to structure our, our lives so that we can actually get up in the morning and like, you know, do things. So we have time and we have misogyny and we have racism and we have all of these structures. But I believe, and maybe this is my uh, Pisces coming out here, but I think <laughs> that truth is something that um, we don't, something that we maybe cannot actually ever understand like the truth like why do human why are human beings so afraid of Mm. people who are different from them what is the truth of that I Mm. don't know that that's a question that I can actually ever really answer um and going back to the civil war I feel like I'm just talking like talking all around the place but going back to the civil war it's like if you are writing that imaginary play about the American civil war and your goal is to tell the truth of that moment, then you 
you know, looking at the names and dates and locations and stuff like that's only the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, or even looking at what did this person say to this person? Like, that is the beginning of figuring out the truth of the Civil War. Hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Does it? Thank you. I, I, <laughs> I'm just talking and it's, it's funny because we're on a podcast, so I'm not seeing you, obviously. So I'm just, I feel like I'm like talking to myself just in my room, like babbling <laughs> on. As you're explaining it, I just kept thinking so much about how truth is, is always seems to be in a gray area, like how um, truth could mean so different for everyone like my mm-hmm. truth versus your truth and so it's like how do how do we meet in the middle of that i guess um it's that's just what i was thinking of when you're saying truth like it's just so subjective that sometimes i mean it could be there right there but how i perceive it and how the person next person perceives it could be so different mm-hmm. exactly and like i something that i really like to do in my plays when I'm talking about history is put two different ideas of truth up against one another and take the pressure off of myself to take that extra step to synthesize the information for the audience, you know? And like what happens if you just place this person's truth next to this person's truth and say, audience, you know, now add your your part to it. I mean, well, right, because I think our job as storytellers is to explore the, those emotional experiences at a much deeper level than just facts. And so if we're engaging with history, how do we recreate those lives for people, you know, who are so far removed from you know, from that lived experience. Um, and I, and it's a, it's a big task and I, I agree with you. It's just so much bigger than dates and, and figures. To, so to tie it around musical, like I'm so curious then um, with this, you know, this idea that you shared with us, like how has musicals, how do you feel like musicals kind of make it accessible or, um, mm. I guess digestible. The way I think about comedy is kind of like that, where you could start presenting that truth and through laughter. But like in the mm-hmm. same way, how do you feel like musical could function like that? Oh, I mean, talk about that like emotional, a, an emotional timeline versus a literal timeline, right? I mean, musicals are all all emotion. And that's why I say this and I mean it. I think every musical is, is brilliant. <laughs> Everyone. Oh, that's yeah. so, I love that. Even musicals that I listen to that I'm like, this is, this is shit. There <laughs> usually is some like, there is usually a moment where emotionally they stumble upon some kind of truth where it's, even if I can't express and vote in words, because as you'll notice during this podcast, I'm sure, speaking like words is, is not the my strongest form of communication which is funny because I'm a playwright but you know there are moments when you might just hear a an overture or someone singing a love song and they're just holding the note just right that happen it falls at the right moment and you know those moments where the music and the performer the way that their voice sounds the way that what they're giving to the piece and also the drama the structure where the song falls in the show where like all of that works together so perfectly and i am convinced that there is not another art form that can make you feel the way that you feel when that happens and because of that through musicals, I don't know if it's actually easier or, you know, maybe more accessible just because music and they're fun or whatever, so more people go see them. But I think that musicals, what they can do for history is 
they can really, really, really allow you to feel before you're thinking about what this might, what the themes of this show might mean or, you know, what, (laughs) or about racism in America, which I feel is what so many of my plays happen to be about. Um, But instead you can feel this inexplainable feeling of sorrow or love or fear. Um, and the example that I that comes to mind is Dream Girls. Y'all know Dream Girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like Dream Girl, if it were a play, I think would be a really good document about, like I said, racism in America. It would be a really good document about the music industry in the 1960s through 70s, right? It would be a really great document about Black people and the art that Black people make. But what it would not have is, and I am telling you. (laughs) And that song, everything that I just said, that song says it all in a matter of seconds. Mm. In a matter of seconds, you automatically are like, I understand this Black woman struggle in America. I understand what, you know, like I feel all of that in a few seconds. And what is it about a song that do you think that can do that, that just dialogue cannot ever achieve? Oh, you know, again, I'm not making this up. I heard this from somewhere, but I don't remember where, but... And it's something I I often repeat to myself. I believe that that there are certain people who would, let's say, we're we're all like Neanderthals and we're running (laughs) around. Um, I think that there are certain people who would say, yo, Sarah, don't go over there in that bush because there's a lion over there and that lion might hurt you. And then I believe that there are people who say, Sarah, once upon a time, a little person who looked just like you walked over into that bush and they found a lion who tore their arm off and there was blood everywhere. (laughs) And the mom cried for days, you know? (laughs) And so I think, and I think that that kind, that story is more effective Mm -hmm. in terms of getting people to not go over into the bush than. You know, if you just said, by the way, there's a lion over there and it might hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. So I believe that I am naturally the kind of person who would tell a story to get my point across. I think that music is even a step further than that. And I'm not a musician. I wish that I were. But I think that music is this like, if you want to tell someone to not go over there into the bush, whereas I would say once upon a time, here's a story. Someone, somehow, there are people out there who can literally pull notes from the gods and somehow put them into their body Mm. and magically make them like into this really potent storytelling, storytelling tool. Let's say that five times fast. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I don't, I know that that didn't really answer your question because I don't have an answer for it. It's mystical to me. I don't know how music does it, but I do think that there are, there are people who have just been given this incredible gift to tell stories in this, you know, what to me is just like absolutely magical and unbelievable way. Mm. I think you said a lot because what you're saying is that song or the music um, this it's all that storytelling and emotion evokes emotion and th- and the way time passes differently like all through that song through music um is there's a lot of like precision and it's concise and it's mm-hmm. in that short span of time we could get so much information um and I think that is I mean, I am the type of person I was like, ah, you know, musicals, it's, it's not my thing, you know, but if I, when I like sit through one, it's like the, it's such a magical experience. Like I just thought I just most recent one before the pandemic I saw was um the, uh, the Temptations, the musical, and that was like a four, like it was like a 40 year journey or something. And I was like, I can't believe I just sat through like 
oh, like a time machine <laughs> that it just like went through this time capsule and followed these um, this band. Um, so I I think I understand what you're trying to say. Um, yeah, and you know, even with musicals like The Temptations, right, which those those kinds of shows definitely fall into the hyper capitalistic how can we get Terry's mm-hmm. grandmother to want to see this show <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and it works right but still like even though it's not a carolina change which i can't even listen to that sometimes it's just too intense too emotionally potent but even if it's not a carolina change mm-hmm. there are still moments where it just like the, the the dancing, the drama, mm. the the music, the singers, it just works still. And I would rather see a bad musical than see a bad play any day. Oh yeah. <laughs> Me too. Any Why day. is that? I mean I I I've never thought about it that way before, but Yeah, because there's something like I think there's something about if you're gonna go and make a musical, it's because you really I don't know, like, even as you're saying the ultra consumerist capitalistic musicals, like, they still have to have something genuine in there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Not like, you can't lie in a musical. Whereas I feel like you can present like a really false worldview in a play much easier, maybe. Totally. I agree mm. with that. I also think like American musical theater comes out of a tradition of like vaudeville and jazz and you know we're not talking about the most highly educated or highly privileged people right Mm. and a lot of immigrant people in new york city built broadway you know like what it is today and um so i think that in musicals there is for me, at least, there's just less of an expectation to be haughty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is musicals have no shame in the fact that they are straight to the heart, straight about emotion, you know, straight about just like emotional depth. Mm-hmm. Whereas plays, I think sometimes we're like, you know, we want to be a little academic. And <laughs> yeah. We, we all, we've all read Brecht's theory. <laughs> so... Yeah. I mean, I feel like in play, it just takes a while to to get there. You're like, you're yeah. setting up and you're like getting to know everybody. And then, then you're like, towards the end, you're like, ah, so this is what it was all about. <laughs> so it just mm-hmm. takes a while to get there where musicals are it's just, there's so much stake in the beginning. Of just like big, you know, you have a big number usually at the top mm. of the show. So to get you engaged and just get right you into the story. Yes. And I, I try to write, you know, I said that I learned story structure from musicals. I really did. And I think I felt story structure in my body before I studied it. Mm. You know, And so I was writing plays. I didn't go, I didn't graduate college. So I, I didn't go to grad school or anything like that. Um, so I didn't learn about structure till much later. And I just felt like you were saying there's that big opening number that tells you who the main characters are usually, or at least it tells you what the world is that you're going to be stepping into. And then right after the opening number, there's usually that I want song. Bam. Mm. Right out, right out. What does the character want? It tells you (laughs) right from the gate, you know, and then you usually get an inciting incident song next, you know, and it's like, I... I try to write my plays that way too. I try to have some big world shattering opening that says to the audience, this is the kind of, these are some of the rules of this new world that you're going to be in. And I try to get that, what does the character want right out of the way? Try to get that inciting incident right out of the way and we're on. And then even like the midpoint, you want to have your defined gravity before intermission. So... (laughs) The the feeling of a midpoint change I just I got from musical theater. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, that's a very really cool way of teaching. So, and you you are also an actor and performer. So, how in addition to shaping the way you think about structure, 
How has that influenced your writing? Oh, um, I think being a performer has influenced my writing mostly because I have a really strong understanding for what a an actor needs of a character. Mm. <laughs> Fun. I mean, frankly, like with the climate crisis as it is, I am truly just trying to have like fun and <laughs> make some plays that, you know, can teach me and, and excite me and keep me curious. So that's the biggest thing I think is when I'm sitting down to write a play, I have one of the gifts that I've been given for free is that I am very empathetic. And so I can step into imagine what it would be like to be this character. If I were playing this character, what is something that this character needs to say that they haven't said yet? Um, and that's that's very beneficial to me. It has proven to be very b beneficial to just be able to like, sometimes I'll even read a script by myself out loud as one character <laughs> and just mm -hmm. feel like, oh, I feel like this character wanted to tell this other character to fuck you one more time. I'm gonna add that in. <laughs> and read the next character and be like, wow, when they said fuck you that second time, I felt like I wanted to walk out. I'm gonna add that, in, you know? Um, and also I write for myself sometimes, which is really so freeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because for the people listening, I am not only Black, but I also have the nerve to be gay as well. <laughs> and so, um, and well-dressed, it's like, what am I thinking? So, <laughs> um, I, it's hard out here, y'all. It's hard to find roles that are meaningful. So it sounds like as you're writing different characters, you kind of approach them. You get inside of them, of every character, as if you were going to play them. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Do y'all act at all? I, I did when I was a very young human. <laughs> um, you know, like through yeah. high school and then I stopped. Yeah, I, I I only perform when I have to. <laughs> so like That's it, not true. It's like when you I get do. thrown into a sketch, like I'll do it. Um, <laughs> I, I did improv, but this is like, I I uh, I just it makes me nervous and anxious. But, yeah. but you sign up to do it. Over I know. And over again. I know. <laughs> I'm just like I don't know why. It's a weird. It's a weird addiction. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's you know I think so many of us get into theater as performers because we don't know how many jobs there are in the theater mm -hmm. and then at least for me there's been this whole process of figuring out okay now that I know there are lots of other things what else do I want to do like I I do want to direct and um, I want to get better at writing and I want to learn more about like cinematography I, and then film, you know, there, there are so many ways that I want to tell stories that I hope, you know, hopefully someone will give, give a brother a shot. <laughs> well, they definitely will after hearing you on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> why why Beckett's babies? Y'all love Beckett, I I assume. Oh my gosh, we had like a list of 20 titles and when we were first coming up with this. And I think we were reading a lot of Beckett because we're in grad school. Yeah. Um, and it just sounded good. How often <laughs> do you do people ask you that question on the podcast? Um, I <laughs> not too like often. One other person has asked yeah. us. Oh, okay. Yeah. I studied abroad uh, at the Gaiety School of Acting in Dublin, Ireland. Cool. And yeah, and we did a lot of Beckett. I have many, many, many fond uh, memories of working on Beckett in Ireland. 
I imagine they're like obsessed with Beckett over there. They are and very, very particular. Like my experience of working on Beckett in particular there was that there was none of this feel your feelings and just (laughs) bullshit. No, it was like, you need to say this in this way. The director's we're glad to give you a line reading. <laughs> you need to oh, walk wow. on this line, speak in this, you know, and I really thrived in that environment. Oh, I, you did? I, it didn't yeah. drive you crazy? No, for some reason, it made me feel more creative. <laughs> I don't oh, know why. yeah. Interesting. But like, yeah, I love, and the, the rhythm of it all, it just really, I loved it. I had a hard time, at the same time as I was studying in Ireland, I was in college learning about like you know Meisner which never (laughs) to me (laughs) it was always so ethereal you know like and I just never got I would be sitting there repeating the same sentence across from my classmates for fucking 20 minutes (laughs) I don't get it (laughs) so it was nice to have someone just be like you know how to make this funny if you say it on this line the audience will laugh Easy. Okay, I can do that. Yeah, like clear structure. And then you have the freedom to think creatively within that structure. That makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. to me. Rather than spending all your time trying to find the structure yourself. If it's just like, if somebody who has been there before says, here's what works. And then you can start from that framework. And then fill in all the creativity yourself. Um. I think that can be very freeing. Yeah. And as a writer, I really respect it in a whole different way too. Like it's pretty cool to know that Beckett has people out there who are making it their life's goal to preserve his work Mm -hmm. in exactly the way that he wanted it to be preserved. Mm. And there aren't that many, like August Wilson, I think, is a playwright like that. Mm-hmm. But And Shakespeare, of course. But there aren't really that many, I don't think. Maybe Tennessee Williams, maybe? People are really... Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like there used to be a lot of people doing that for Arthur Miller, but I don't know if that's true anymore. Mm-hmm. Um... What do you guys think about that? Like... When you're dead and gone, do you want your work to be sort of like perfectly, pristinely preserved and with the rhythm, I mean, and the style that you wrote? Or do you want people to completely like fuck with it and and switch it up? Definitely the latter for me. Yeah. I feel like I'll just never think of my play as finished, all my plays finished. I always feel Mm -hmm. like they're constantly being changed or you know, rewritten in so many ways. And I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't ever feel like they're finished. So that sounds like personal hell. <laughs> Terry, do you want, what do you want people to do with your work in I like 200 know. years? Oh God, I don't know. You know, I hope that in 200 years, my work is not relevant anymore. And that people are like, wow. Like, you know, I hope that, it is preserved in the way that people can come see it and be like, you remember when racism was a problem in America? Mm. Isn't that so interesting? Yeah, like here's a writer who was dealing with this problem we no longer have. Right, yeah. Like I I want my work to be seldom seen, only like maybe every 20 years someone will do a couple of my plays and talk about how we once had this problem Mm -hmm. and no longer have it. That is my dream. Because I'm gonna die. I don't. I don't need to be remembered forever. You know that is not. That is not what. Uh, I no longer have those aspirations. So. Yeah. My work does not need to be done in a hundred years. Yeah, because hopefully there will be some new writers who are super relevant for that time. Yeah, and like, pay me now, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. Okay, so a couple of questions before we move on to glistens. Um, what are some best and maybe worst maybe practices you've learned along the way during on your playwriting journey? 
Ooh, okay. Best and worst practices. So some of my best practices that I've learned are um, drink water. Mm. I have, <laughs> I have, I have started every day with uh, an intentional cup of water where I just sit. Maybe I'll listen to you know I might turn on some Joni Mitchell or something, but I'll just sit and uh, drink a whole glass of water and not allow myself to think about my emails or think about anything but this very simple task that actually is kind of hard to do <laughs> to make yourself drink water. So yeah, drinking drinking water and like <laughs> you're and... such a Pisces. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> Uh, truly but yeah like drinking water and stretching and um reminding yourself that you are both you are a writer by profession and so that means we're talking money we're talking capitalism we're talking emails we're talking stress but you're also a storyteller mm. by gift by like write and what that means is keeping yourself healthy and creative and empathetic and sensitive. So uh, that, I also love input output because I easily get overwhelmed by emails, if you can't tell, since I've mentioned it like eight times. <laughs> and I love to say, all right, I have a list of movies that I want to watch and I will just make sure that I watch one a week. Like, watch some old movies, watch mm. some, if you've heard of this movie that, you know, Casablanca, just for an example, like I had never seen it. I of course have heard of it. And one day I just said, why not? Let me just watch this. <laughs> you know, why not? And I, mm -hmm. I love it. Not necessarily. No, but I, I do think that keeping like the more we expand our influences the more our work will surprise us. So like listening to new music, watching new movies, reading mm -hmm. new plays, um, and then some bad practices. The number one worst practice that I have as a writer is treating myself like writing as a moral obligation. And if I do not write for that day, like I have done something terrible and like, I am a bad person and how dare I not write and I'm a terrible playwright and I'm going to be a failure and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, writing is not moral. Like if I don't write, that is a-okay. I still have a good relationship with my friends and my partner and my siblings and my family. I still, you know, like I still love myself. I still watered my plant, you know, it's like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> It is oh, it is okay to not write. Yeah, and I'm yeah. still a storyteller, even if I choose, or you know, some days I feel like I didn't choose not to write. Some days I'm, I'm like, I'm gonna write all day until midnight. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's not helpful to to harm yourself, to make yourself work harder. That is capitalism that is the like police on our shoulder talking that's not well yeah and I think about like you know gardening or farming practices you need times when the fields are just fallow you know and yeah. there are times to oh my god I sound like the bible there are times to reap and times to sow and like you you it's okay <laughs> if you're not I think not writing every day or not harvesting every day and just yeah. letting your mind wander is just as important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I am very, I have been very seduced in the past by this like grind culture, especially on social media, especially with artists and writers. Yeah. And um, you mean yeah. the, the culture of constantly producing? Yeah. The culture of always having, I, I have big news coming up, you know, <laughs> Yeah, working on something. And um, uh, it's something that I am working on in, in terms of not so much feel like comparison, which that's there too, but also just feeling like what it means to be a artist is to be like Beyonce, is to be tired, is to be working all the time, is to... Hmm. You know, 
never take any breaks, never ex- like assuming that all of your time that is not owed to someone else is free time <laughs> that right. you can, that is, you know, mm-hmm. that a meeting can fill, you know, like I'm trying to just figure out what it looks like to be a, a professional artist who doesn't take pride from how hard I work and how tired I am. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That is a challenge. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, here's a fun question to balance out that, (laughs) that heavy (laughs) line. Um, what three playwrights living or dead would you like to invite to a dinner party? Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) A dinner party. Okay. This is good. So uh, and there's wow, no should... COVID anymore, so you don't have to worry about. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Okay. Good. 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 Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, Oscar Wilde. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I, I feel like Oscar Wilde is a frequent guest at these parties. Yes. Really? Oscar Wilde. I, hasn't, haven't hasn't somebody else said Oscar Wilde? I don't, like, I don't think so. That was I feel oh, like the okay. first time for me hearing it. Maybe well, good right. choice. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, what a fun guest that would be. Um, so yeah. So okay, Oscar Wilde is one. Um, honestly, Tennessee Williams. I like the two of them together. <laughs> hilarious. Oh my gosh, hilarious. And then um, let's see, who could the third person be? I want someone maybe a little more like, maybe like a. Hmm. Hmm. I should have. This is so. <laughs> this is the hardest question that I will answer this week. <laughs> um, <laughs> and no matter who I say, I'm instantly going to regret it and be like, I can't believe I missed this person. Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Such a good that, combination. That, I think they would fight. <laughs> I think the three of, I don't know if they would get along, but I want to be there. But you would enjoy it. Yes. Fighting. Yeah. What and would you serve for dinner? Yeah, I, I think like maybe Tennessee and I will both tag team in the kitchen and like, <laughs> you know, while Oscar and Sondheim are bickering in the living room and we'll make like fried chicken and some like Southern, you know, some mint juleps or something. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Wow, that would be a fun and by the way, Sondheim now. Okay, I want him in his 90s. Okay, I want him peak crabbiness. I mean, I have to say, maybe you should just write this as a musical, this party. <gasps> you know oh, what I mean? I want to wait till he dies because I think he. <laughs> <laughs> you can write it now and then just not show it to anybody for you know, yeah. a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I have one more question now because <laughs> sorry to. Uh, um, this was a fun question. I'm um, going back to the heavy stuff. <laughs> no, it's not that heavy. But I was this um, just talking to you. I was like, made me want to know or be curious about if you could um, talk to your younger self, the young Terry who first got introduced to musical. Like, what advice would you give to that Terry from mm. what you know now? Ooh, wow! And this is this is supposed to be not the heavy question. Um, <laughs> um wow what a profound it's 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 one of those questions that like you hear asked all the time but it's truly a profound question thank you for asking I think that I would tell younger Terry who's just discovered musical theater that that there will come a time when I will see myself represented on stage and in movies. And so I don't need to waste time melding and, you know, shape shifting and trying to fit myself into this mold that Mm. I will never fit. And I spent so many years as an actor, as a writer, trying to suit white people 
to prove to my white professors that I was good enough to cast me in a show, to prove to white artistic directors that my show is going to be something that their white season subscribers are going to dig. And I just wish that I knew that uh, being fully myself was actually the key and that there was going to come a time when being me was very fashionable. And in fact, even white people were going to be trying to be me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, how do you think your younger self would have heard that or responded to that? I mean, I think what could that have done for you to hear that? I think the first thing my younger self would have said is, I'm not gay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then after, we'll, after we have that conversation. So cute. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you mean? What do you mean gay? I, I'm, not, I'm not gay, bro. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that that would have opened up so much. I think I would have not wasted time. And I think I would have really taken some risks that I did not take. Like I wouldn't, I went to a primarily white institution called Kennesaw State University. If you're out there listening from KSU, bitch. Um, anyway, <laughs> I went to KSU and it was a really traumatic experience. And I think that if I would have known that, I would have skipped it altogether. I would have gone to yeah. another school. I would have gone maybe to a conservatory or maybe not at all, you know, or I would have looked to other queer black people for advisement <laughs> and not yeah. really, like straight white professors. Hmm. Yeah. I really feel for all the people out there who are in those traumatic processes and experiences right now. Yeah. It's just so hard. There's so many things that are just so hard for young people who, you know, don't, they don't know what's out there yet. Yeah, right. And you're taught that these people know more than you, right? that they yep. mean more than you, that, you know, you would be silly to not take their advice. <sighs> and it's just, the world is so much bigger. Well, Terry, thank you so much for this really thought-provoking interview. I have to say, I think you're our first guest who has asked us so many questions, (laughs) which I really appreciate. Um, And before we move to Glistens, where can our listeners find you? Um, First off, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I, I talk so much. And so this was, <laughs> this was very like, I, like I said, I felt like I was in my shower. So thank you. This was, <laughs> I wish that we could talk for two more hours. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Terry explains it all. Um, and I don't really have that much social media. I don't have Twitter or anything. Um, you can, I have a website, Terry C Um, so you can go there, but don't just go to Instagram, y'all. And if you really want to get in touch with me, just DM me on Instagram. That's like truly the best way. Cool. All right. All right. So glistens. Um, it's the end of our show where we like to share favorite glistens of the week or highlights. Um, it could be headline or favorite music you heard. Just pretty much anything that just sparked your attention. Um, so. I could start first. Um, (laughs) Okay. This is like, I don't know. This is such a weird glisten to say because it was about, it was almost my tweet and I held it. Um, (laughs) But the thing that I was about to tweet, and I guess now I'm going to just share it on the show, was that um, how like I can't really say what I hate on Twitter or like shows I hate because you don't know who's looking at your stuff. Um, Cause like the person that might want to hire you or the next person that wants to say something. So the tweet I was about to tweet was like, um, there's this one show that I really hate, but I can't say it because I don't know who's going to read this and then cancel me or whatever. So I don't, but don't know. you think, I mean, you should still be able to share your opinions. I yeah, I know, I know, but there's I find myself just like stopping. I'm always mm. constantly stopping, and I have so many drafts, 
so many drafts of tweets. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's all living in there. Um, but yeah, that's just like something that came to my mind this week. I was like, why am I constantly, constantly just pausing? And then like, you know what? Mm. I'm not going to do that. And then forget about it. But then, yeah. But maybe it's just- also though, maybe Twitter is, I mean, I'm not on Twitter as you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel that social media um, creates that desire within us to say those things and also then creates that fear of saying the things. And like, like that's what it's designed to do, right? It's designed mm-hmm. to provoke. And so, I mean, I've once yeah. I got a Facebook, I found that I no longer had this desire to like argue with strangers about politics. Yeah. And you know, like that desire just went away. Mm-hmm. And I realized mm-hmm. that Facebook was creating that desire within me um, to be mm-hmm. argument. I mean, not that I'm not argumentative, but... Y'all should do an entire episode, if you haven't already, on how social media affects writers. Yeah. I I think about that all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Sarah, you can tell us what you hate to save the (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Well, like, I think what sparked that tweet was, like, I watched Tenet which is a Christopher Nolan movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so bad. Like, I was like, I, it was, it was both stressful and boring. Like that's the worst f- emotions to go through. It was like stressful yeah. and boring at the same time. Um, so yeah, I just, I was like, watched it and I was like, man, I don't like this, but um, I appreciated uh, the, what he was trying to do though. Cause of like the, 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 the special effects were really cool, which, but then uh, the, just everything else, I was like, this is just stressful and boring and I couldn't engage at all. And then I was about to tw- tweet that. I was like, this is so stressful and boring. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah. All right. Who's next? <laughs> uh, I could go next. Um, my lesson, I got to spend some time this past week with my dad's cousin, um, who I have, you know, I don't know that well, but she, my dad was visiting and my sister and and then she came to meet up with us for a day. And I was just thinking about how cool it is to spend time with family members who are like just a little bit further removed than the family members I'm used to spending time with. Um, I mean, she and my dad shared a grand, a set of grandparents. And so just like hearing from her about my Mm. great grandmother and her memories of my dad mm. when they would get together as cousins as kids was really cool um and I just think that's a, that's so special and so um I want to I want to seek out more family members like that and mm. hear their stories mm. that's my dang that is really special um do I get one Yes. Yeah, you say we saved the best for last. Oh my god! <laughs> um, my glisten is uh, so Nicki Minaj released her mixtape, which is called "Be Me Up, Scotty." It came out twelve years ago, and she released it for streaming finally. And let me tell you, I have been listening to this mixtape on YouTube for twelve years. So I am very excited to have it uh, actually stream. And I've been listening to it a lot and it's taking me back to the like late high school, early college years. And I, I, I wish that I had some of that frivolity back, you know, it's such a silly album. It's such a, you know, it's all about just getting money and, and having, (laughs) having sex with lots of people and, I think that even though I was neither getting money nor having sex with lots of people at that time in my life, (laughs) (laughs) it it just all seemed so, so simple and and fun. Wait, did you say that was her first album? Yeah, it's her, it's, it's her mixtape. So it's before her like official first album. Yeah. 12 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I tell you, time 
flies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I, I think someone said that once. <laughs> <laughs> well, Terry, thank you so much again for being on our show and talking to us. It was really enlightening and special. And listeners, don't forget to check out Terry's work on New Play Exchange. Yes, thank you. Website. I should have said that. Yes, it's on New Play Exchange. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything I need to like pit, like promote? Um, I have a show called Andy Warhol Presents the Cocaine Play. And, oh <laughs> and um, I am playing a version of Andy Warhol. And that is going to be on Zoom, of course. Ugh, Zoom plays, geez. But that's going to be in late July. So keep your ears Amazing. Wow. Okay, cool. I love all your titles. It's just, oh my gosh. <laughs> they just so grab me. All right. Thank Thanks, Terry. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.